Like you are not presenting as if you want to be one of us. Right. Given that we're right. never going to accept you as one of us. You're not presenting as if you want to be one of us. So there has to be something that we can put you no, through that's to so make true. you right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Yeah. And I think that again, like, and that kind of goes into how, how often dissent and protest have often been also seen mm. as like, you know, veering into that line of like, you know, kooky, crazy, extravagant, exactly. extra, you know, and hmm, that's really interesting. And it's such a natural response, but only if you've divested from all of the norms that you're fighting against. Salams, peace and blessings. You're listening to Breaking Binaries with me, your host, Sahima Mansour Khan, known online as the Brown Hijabi. As a society, we're obsessed with explaining our world through the use of straightforward opposing categories, so good or bad, moderate or radical, pretty or ugly, victim or villain. The list goes on. All these sets of binaries, though, tend to be quite superficial and they hide the real complexities, politics and nuances of how we've been encouraged to think. So every episode, I'll be sitting down with a different friend to break down, break apart and really interrogate a different binary and see how doing so helps us think more critically and widely about ourselves, our world and therefore how we transform it. This episode, I'm joined by my friend Wayda Resevatindira. She's a really wonderful old friend of mine and one of the first people to really politicize me. She's training to be a lawyer and is one of my co-authors of our book, A Fly Girl's Guide to University. And we had a really eye-opening conversation around her experiences and the ways we think about health. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Okay, so hi and welcome to another episode. Uh, today I am with my friend Waythera Sabatindira. <laughs> you can say hello if you want. <laughs> hi, if you hello. Like. I have a tendency to talk over people when I introduce them. Waythera is like my big feminist hero. Um, yeah, <laughs> true. Um, and taught me a lot about what I know, um, even though she didn't realize she was teaching me. So plot twist. Um, I'm my co-author of a book that we wrote, which also you should buy, A Fly Girl's Guide to University. Um, so we're going to be breaking down the binary of healthy and sick today. Um, and I'm going to let away there and tell you a bit more about that because this kind of came out of a conversation we were having, um, where I guess I was really interested. I think so far on, on this series, like we've done a lot of talking about state violence and, um, kind of violence in general and how we think about ourselves and how the state thinks about us. But this, I think goes into more in a way, like territory that I'm less familiar with, more like personally important. Why don't you say a bit about where you were coming from with this? Um, and then we can kind of go into it a bit. Yeah. Um, so basically, uh, I've been very lucky to, um, over the course of the last few years, have a number of things go slightly wrong in my head. Um, <laughs> and my approach to getting help for that uh, was to get to a point where, you know, I previously was ill. Oh, I had these illnesses and then I wasn't going to have them anymore. Mm. So I think that from, I remember some biology lesson, maybe year seven or whatever, where we're taught the definition of healthy means being free from illness, mm. or being free from sickness of any kind. And then being sick just means having an illness of some sort. Um, but I'm basically kind of in a position where that's an unrealistic goal for me okay. uh, in terms of health as, as lacking an illness. Uh, so in terms of depression, for example, um, it's the sort of thing where I think the NHS uh, predicts that around one in 10 people will get depression over the course of their lifetime. Okay. Um, but the thing there is that once you've already had a depressive episode, it's more likely that you will go on to have another depressive mm. episode. So if you've been depressed in the past, you're more likely to become depressed again. And so a lot of the treatment surrounding that um, concerns more management rather than a cure, yeah. uh, which is something that I didn't really listen to. Well, that's interesting because I think that even even if if that seems obvious, yeah. like that it's about management, I still think you get that, that 
idea and people internalize it as well that like but there will be a day where I will like surface from this and then therefore like be ticked off you know and well thing and like even on a structural level uh within the nhs the most i guess they can generally offer is about six sessions of uh cbt Mm. if you have depression um and the point of those six sessions is to teach you coping mechanisms and you go out into the world Mm. but it's also very easy to be like well after these six you know i'll be cured yeah um particularly yeah just because that's kind of what we're taught about the nature of illness and also then that kind of conflicts like uh, being cured with like being like you know, quote unquote, like well enough to work, basically. Exactly. That's 100% it. <laughs> Which you know. is, because I'm just thinking as well in my head, how do I measure, you know, basically like the measurement of whether you're really ill or not is like whether you're going to leave the house and go do the things that you should be paid to do or not. Mm-hmm. Just this conflation with like ill enough to be broken enough to not be able to do capitalism. Yeah. Um, Which then also is really problematic in of itself because some people are gonna like capitalism isn't always gonna be violent and not catered to everybody exactly this is the thing and so because illness is actually one of the few justifications for not working um alongside like being pregnant or a child or already super rich yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh, it's kind of inevitable that it's a very jealously guarded and quite Mm. narrow category of person yeah and very heavily policed um and i take a lot of issue with that and i think um that that goes back to this very simplistic binary of healthy or sick because mm. you're either able to sort of be an ideal worker in a capitalist yeah. setting. You're either able to get to work for nine, mm. work until five or six or ten, uh, <laughs> able to have like a really disrupted sleep schedule, yeah. um, or you're just not. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And yeah, if you're not, then you are stigmatized because you're mm. unable to contribute in the way that people think mm. that you should be able to contribute. Mm. Um, but that doesn't always map onto how illness actually works yeah yeah um, and also then i think you get that com- like there's a lot of associations with somebody who is quote-unquote ill <laughs> it's like also yeah that it, you're kind of not you're not relevant like you don't fall into the category of like who is relevant to think about in exactly. some, even just thinking about like you know when you do register or something at school and it'd be like absent it's mm-hmm. just like you become an absent pre- you, like your presence is i don't know there's something about that that's kind of like your illness has made you just invisible you just disappear from like who is present and who is matters in that space and you're not really worth considering no um, because even when you look at the way that school for example or work in particular uh is structured it's not structured for people that are sick Mm. it's not structured for people that can still work Mm. and uh you know produce profit through their labor Mm. um but need accommodations and this is changing somewhat like i definitely i'm always um, really encouraged when I hear about people that work at jobs that let them take out like a lot of time or mm. that contribute to the cost of them getting extra healthcare for whatever reason they need to go private. Yeah. Um, but that's still not deemed the norm. There is still very much this idea that you are sick and you cannot work. Yeah. And you can see that even in day-to-day language, like people don't realize that they're doing it. But if you are well enough to work and people say, oh, you're fine then. You mm. know? Yeah, or, that's oh, you're true. okay. Yeah, you're okay. <laughs> but you yeah. can be sick and still... like force yourself to turn up because sometimes like you you can't not work yeah actually that's really interesting because I've I've always thought this in like um the sense of like when I think about my mom and like I I feel like particularly maybe this is like a diaspora thing or just a marginalized people thing but like Mm. it's like being ill is a huge like you because you'll I think you're rarely ill enough that you're actually ill it's like the and and obviously that's problematic because obviously there are that's you know not even going into kind of people who have chronic disabilities and stuff but just the idea that like, yeah, you, oh, no, you just have a flu. No, you're just mm-hmm. bed bound. Like, but you're still going to go. And it's, as you say already, that you can see that a binary has a lot weighed on it and a lot attached to it, which it depends on how much you're able to also fall. I don't know. I don't know. It's a kind of tricky. 
It is like people territory. think it's a bit of a. I think people assume it's a descriptive term, yeah. illness or sickness, but it's a normative one because mm. um, at the end of the day, like even before capitalism, sickness was a very stigmatized mm. state of being. Uh, it's a bad thing, um, and if you're chronically ill in any way, yeah. that's the worst possible right. thing. Um, but fundamentally, day to day, when people talk about sickness and illness, yeah. it is about are you able to go out and contribute in ways that we deem to be worthwhile? Mm. And I think this also falls into the idea of functionality. Yeah. Um, this idea of being functioning, where if people have to acknowledge that you're ill, mm. but you're still out there working, mm. then they just call you high functioning. Yeah, yeah. So, like, when I think about my ADHD, for example, it's not an illness, yeah. but it is a disorder and it does ruin my, li- my life <laughs> uh, regularly. Um, but when I first started talking about my diagnosis to people, they mm. either didn't believe me uh, okay. or they said that if you have it, it can't be that bad. Or they mm. called me high functioning. And That's that was so interesting. entirely because I perform well academically. Yes. Yes, um, yeah. you know, and that's partly also rooted in like sort of wider ignorance about what ADHD yeah. actually is. But at sense. the root of it, because at this stage in my life, um, I'm becoming employable. Um, there's this idea that if I have any kind of disorder that is supposed to impede that, mm. uh, I must be high functioning. But what's and also that's it? like a value. That's like a good. Exactly. That's good. That's you well know? done. It's supposed know? to be like a tick in the yeah, box. Yeah. You're not like the others. Yes, exactly. But the thing is, if you sit me um, in an exam hall mm. under high stress conditions, or even if you put me like. Um, um, on a stage during doing public speaking, um, those are the kinds of circumstances in which my ADHD flourishes mm-hmm. um, because I, I don't call it an illness uh, or even I don't really see it as a disorder because... Um, That's also an interesting word I was going to... Yeah. yeah um, I don't really see it in that way because in those circumstances, it becomes a kind of superpower. It helps me, I think. So actually for our listeners, can you... What is ADHD? Ooh, uh, so ADHD... <laughs> <laughs> Just to on a tangent. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of classed as a neurodevelopmental de- de- disorder um, and it's something that... Uh, is it tends to be diagnosed in children uh, mm-hmm. and it's kind of people assume that that's what it is and when people think about ADHD they think about children bouncing off the walls yep. and performing badly at school and being distractions um, but in terms of describing ADHD I think of it more as a sort of syndrome than a disorder in the sense that I think it's a collection of symptoms that tend to appear together Okay, um, which also explains why it has high comorbidity comorbidity why can I not speak today what does that mean with other illnesses so it tends to pop up with other things oh, so like ADHD and autism tend to come Got up you. quite a lot uh, ADHD and BPD come up quite a lot okay. ADHD and anxiety come up quite a lot um, and so this is why there's this talk of it kind of being syndromes and in terms of what those symptoms actually are I'll focus on the symptoms that affect me the most mm-hmm. um, and others the most uh, what most people tend to see is an issue of executive dysfunction okay. so um it, and that basically describes all of the tasks that you have to undergo in order to reach a goal. Okay. Um, and so all of that happening happens in like your prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. which is the bit of your brain that's most affected by ADHD. Okay. Uh, and so I just really struggle to start tasks uh, to maintain... Um, yeah, to, to, to maintain the sort of drive to carry mm. out tasks. Um, I know that everybody procrastinates. I know that everybody struggles with stuff that they find boring. But when you have an ADHD yeah. brain, that stuff is actually kind of impossible. Mm. Um, but in addition to that, it pops up with a whole load of things like emotional dysregulation, okay. um, which doesn't pop up in like the diagnostic material purely because it's so difficult to measure. But anybody with ADHD will tell you that it's a big part of it. And again, you know, people sometimes use their tempers. People sometimes feel overjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really find that 
once I'm in an emotion, I can't come out of it. And okay. so part of me managing my ADHD has to be identifying an emotion long before it comes up. Okay, okay. And then being like, is it okay for me to feel this? Or do I need to try and not feel this? And mm. I get that a lot with sort of anger and sadness and mm-hmm, frustration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, trying to manage that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, also issues of like time management. Okay. Um, so there's a lot uh, yeah, to it. I'm yeah. just thinking what's interesting here as well is like even... Because I think with all of this as well, there's like there isn't implicitly the norm that is better than, right? Exactly. So it's like dysfunction mm-hmm. it already tells us that like, you, in a way you're wrong. Like yeah. you're, you're just, there's something gone wrong. And, and particularly older, um, like people of color that I know that I'm just thinking in my head, like, wow, I wonder if they had been a white child, whether mm-hmm. they have been, would have been diagnosed with certain things. And I think that's a really interesting thing, right? The way that this is actually racially kind of interpreted. Yeah. What what do you, yeah. I mean, you get uh, the gendered issue with ADHD, um, which is that (laughs) you basically, um, it's kind of split into attentive and inattentive ADHD. So attentive is uh, inattentive, well, no, hyperactive and inattentive. That's it. So hyperactive is the one that people know about bouncing off the walls. Inattentive in children in particular tends to just manifest as daydreaming or being a bit spacey. And girls tend to have inattentive ADHD. People talk about about it being a biological thing. I think it's a societal thing. Sounds true. <laughs> Girls are punished a lot more for bouncing off the walls. Sounds true, yeah. Um, but that tends to be underdiagnosed because people are looking for the symptoms in boys. Right, of um, course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also think that it definitely is a racialized thing because if you think about it, I was very disruptive at school mm-hmm. because of my ADHD. Mm. Um, and for whatever reason, I was lucky that... Um, I, I wasn't probably for class reasons, definitely for class reasons. <laughs> I wasn't like expelled from school. Um, you know, I was able to carry out my education despite being quite a disruptive child. Okay. But if you have like a little black boy yeah. um, in a school with loads and loads of students yeah. um, who's being disruptive, the most empathy I can imagine that they're going to get from a teacher is maybe the stuff going on at mm. home. But I don't know that people are going to be like, maybe yeah. there's something else. Yeah, I remember um, a friend who is a nursery school teacher was saying that, oh, no, no, no sorry, a parent of a nursery school school child mm-hmm. um, on the first day. So these are like three-year-olds, these are toddlers and this um, small little three-year-old black boy comes mm. into the class and the teacher just immediately goes in a really, you know, like loving way. Um, oh, I can tell he's going to be trouble. And that oh. is, is so, you know, you're like, wow. Exactly. Yeah. So if he, yeah, if he was to exhibit any of these things, well, of course, you know, because he's bound to be trouble. It's essentialized into him. Thing. Yeah. Um, which, okay. Yeah. And that, and that kind of brings me to a question I had about as well this, which is like, there's an extent to which also certain bodies are already conceived of as sick and healthy and that becomes essentialized into them. And I guess um, I'm just thinking about like, particularly during colonialism and you have this idea of like these backwards tribes, peoples, whatever, who are essentially, you know, diseased or have, have some, not, not disease necessarily, but sort of biologically um, inferior or have, have like these failings uh, of some kind. And then, and obviously what's interesting and ironic is that a lot of times like Europeans brought with them these diseases that wiped out <laughs> people. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, do you, how do you see that carrying through to now? Or do you like this essentialism of, of sickness and health? I mean, for sh- like <laughs> it's such a personal thing. And I think the, the question that you raised is a really important one um, that I don't feel qualified to expand upon, except sure. within my own personal experience. When I arrived at Cambridge and became depressed, I felt really worried about um, expressing that because I'd had teachers tell me um, that I was going to get into Cambridge because I was filling a quota. And I know that that's like a wider accepted idea among white people. And yeah. so I thought, what happens? Like inevitably, if I say I went to Cambridge and I struggled because my mental health like kind of took a dip, 
hope mm. are there going to be people who are like well you weren't supposed to be there in the first place well this is what mm. happens when we let people that aren't quite able <laughs> into these spaces um, and that shouldn't have been a concern but I worried that it would be mm. and I worried that that would affect the care that I received if I did get help it was a very minor concern because yeah. I had many other issues yeah. that stopped me from going to get care most of which were just my own yeah. making okay. um, but I think one there is that and two I think that uh it is one of those things that you mentioned earlier. It's it's it becomes a way to kind of cover up all manner of sins about mm. like how if you just call somebody ill or if somebody becomes ill, it becomes a way to not think about what makes them ill. Yeah. So like I became depressed at Cambridge partly because the workload is ridiculous mm-hmm, and unnecessary, mm-hmm. but also because of extreme racism right. in that space. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. And I think yeah, no, no. I just just made me think the other day. I was at you know, and this happened. This is not this is not unique, but I was um an event and it was like a charity fundraiser thing and they, they were really proud and they were saying you know we are going to start putting more focus on mental health yeah. um, but the way that they approached it was that very much like in this very individualistic manner like you're saying yeah. where it's like we will you know do yoga classes in the morning and we're going to um, but we're not actually going to like think about the conditions as you say in which people live and um, and yeah I think that to me is the most kind of disturbing trend in this whole um, health sick binary where it's like have a mental health day where we quote unquote raise awareness um, and I don't know what that does because beyond that we still in the wider context living in the situation where the conditions which make people's mental health bad or you know make their life difficult are not alleviated in any way you know they continue to persist but we found evidence that like um, the circumstances that austerity is brought about for example affect people's mental health Um, so you can have people that are bringing about the conditions that make people depressed that make them anxious that make them develop a whole host of mental illnesses and those same people will be like let's have a mental health day Mm. um, because this is a problem and we want to raise awareness Uh, and then the 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 onus isn't on them to kind of fix what they've broken yeah no 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 completely and I think that fits with a lot of the other that we've been looking at a lot how often with these binaries they are displacing and distracting a circum like a context mm. and they're, they're, they're very much focusing on an individual but actually I'm just thinking as well within this is there an extent to which even in our conversation about like taking account of the conditions and the context and circumstances yeah. we're still um kind of prioritize <laughs> I don't know not not prioritizing but there's this kind of um Obsession still with healthiness, mm-hmm. maybe, and a kind of not obsession, I don't know, yeah, an obsession, let's say, where I think we still, um, in a sense, feel that sickness is this negative thing to be feared and pitied and hated and yeah. devalued, um, which obviously becomes very ableist and is very ableist because um, what happens when in that focus on progress to healthiness, to the other side of that binary, um, you actually have already demarcated who can't move there and who can't come into there and that they, as we already said, are kind of ostracized and, and, can't, and can't function as part of society. So I guess I'm just thinking as well, if if there's a way to think about health without obsessing and, and kind of fearing and pitying and deciding who is sick. Mm-hmm. D- does that make sense? I, I definitely do. And I, I thought about this for a while. And at first I tried to think of a one word answer. <laughs> <laughs> but I think a way to escape the binary is to just think about access to care. Um, because fundamentally we, we all get sick. Uh, even if from the common cold yeah. to like serious <laughs> chronic illnesses, we all get sick. But the extent to which uh, that illness uh, debilitates us, mm. uh, even stigmatizes us, mm. or affects our ability to live our lives, yeah. makes us happy. <laughs> With some illnesses, the greatest level of access to care yeah. um, won't 
um, stop those illnesses from defining our lives to a large extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly as concerned the illnesses that are affecting me, um, access to care has been the yeah. answer. Like in terms of the fact that dealing with depression, dealing with anxiety and other stuff, um, that's not probably going to go away. Mm. Uh, and ADHD as well, which isn't an illness, but it's still there. Mm. Um, the thing that allows me to, to lead a life that I'm like proud of and that I'm happy living within mm. um, has been access to care, has been access to mm. therapy. Um, and that's a very political thing. I think thinking about health in terms of access to care automatically politicizes yeah, it because yeah. the first time that I decided to to see a therapist, yeah. I went to the NHS. This was back in Cambridge. Yeah. And the the waiting list, they didn't tell me this at the time, but the waiting list <laughs> turned out to be 11 months. Right. Okay. Such that halfway through that time, I had to see somebody privately. Yeah. And I could only see somebody privately because I could afford yeah. it. You know? Yeah, of course. And I had to see somebody privately because as is the case with so many people, mm. my mental health deteriorated mm-hmm. over the course of that time right. without any help. Right. Um, and so, yeah, now that I have access to care, yeah. um, I'm able to lead a life where even though I can't live without illness, mm. um, I can still live well. Right. Um, and I can maybe even redefine healthy. I can have, a, a, yeah. I, I can know what healthy looks like for me. Healthy mm. for me looks like doing what my therapists tell mm. me to do and monitoring my symptoms day to day. No, but that's a good point though, isn't it? That healthy, yeah. I think, because part of the binary as well is that we have one very um, like reified view of what healthy looks like yeah. um, and one kind of body and one kind of, um, you know, because I'm just thinking as well about about like how this becomes like fat phobia and how this becomes all these other things because it's like one type of body is health. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I quite like that, what you're saying about like, I know what healthy is for me. Exactly. Um, and yeah. And I think like going back to the the functioning idea, it's knowing that, um, I, I yeah, it, it, again, you have to like break apart this idea of healthy being functioning or being able to, to work because mm-hmm. like I know that day to day I'll move across differing levels of my ability to function. So for example, mm. with the ADHD example again, like in an exam, I'll do very well. Mm. But um, if you ever saw me walking through an unfamiliar supermarket mm. uh, that I was forced to stay in because I was shopping with other people, mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's Lots literally a nightmare. <laughs> and loads of people hate that. But what happens for me is that it becomes so overstimulating mm. that I actually either have a meltdown or I become totally nonverbal. Okay. And it's not something that people see okay. um, in my life because I tend to go shopping alone mm. and like I have a list and I don't go to unfamiliar supermarkets yep. but if I find myself in that situation if a stranger were to meet me and ask me what was wrong and I'd say I have ADHD they'd be like oh poor baby you're low functioning mm. but this That's is the same ADHD right. that has helped me pass my exams right. very well and, oh, you know? so interesting yeah 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 and yeah. so it's also understanding that like conditions can present themselves differently in different situations yeah. and not to panic because I especially with things like depression like whenever I felt low for any reason mm. I would panic and be mm. like I'm about to enter another depressive mm. episode I haven't been doing what my therapist has told mm. me. I'm a failure. Yeah. And just accepting that some days will be hard. Yeah. And it's easier said than done. Um, but I think the moment I let go of this idea that what I was striving towards was never having a low period, mm. never feeling anxious, yeah. never having ADHD like yeah. affect me in a way that I didn't want it to. Yeah. I was able to develop like a relationship with the idea of health that was actually healthy. No, that is really, really interesting. I think. I think that we're so, I kind of feel like we're just hearing you that we're so far from, yeah, <laughs> from that 100%. understanding. Um, and that like, because I, I, I even think that, um, I remember just having a lot of confusion around like what depression had to look like. Mm. Um, and I remember as well when I was at Cambridge that, you know, there was this period of time where the college nurse that I was talking to was saying like, you know, you, you do seem depressed and this doesn't mm. seem, um, you know, good. But at the same time to myself, I was like, but you know, I, gener- I feel, I do feel low, but I feel 
it's as you say before, like manageable. It's yeah. like it's fine. I can I can carry on like this. This is this can go on for a long time. Mm. And I think also when you get used to certain conditions as well, like there's a sense in which um, the expectations for like how your mental health is supposed to be. And I think particularly like in different circumstances. So if like racism is a really big um, prevalent aspect of the day-to-day or of which you're in or if it's like you have to work a terrible job because uh, you know of capitalism and you can't <laughs> yeah. afford to sustain your family or whatever like certain conditions I think also make it so that with the bar of like what we want our health to be mm-hmm. changes as well and then yeah. we and so then managing it becomes well it can't be a priority as well I guess which is you know because if you have to wake up at a certain time and you have to go to work till a certain time and you have to come home, like I'm just thinking about like zero hour contracts yeah, maybe can you say more about so because I'm I, I'm interested in this idea of like um, managing and like mm-hmm. thinking about like it, for you is that like just the, the more you have got to know about the way that is works for you to be healthy, you mm-hmm. know how to do you have like is it like that you have strategies that you or like what does management mean? This marrying of um, mental illness with your capacity to work can kind of factor into diagnosis in an interesting and dangerous way. Mm. Um, So I think about this in terms of like the illness that I struggle the most to talk about, which is alcoholism and how um, whenever I sort of when I when I started to get help for it and I went to see doctors um, with one exception and I saw loads of mental health professionals about it or mentioned it to loads of mental Mm. health professionals. Only one believed me when I said that I was an alcoholic. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. All of the others, including um, all of the professionals that I encountered in drug and alcohol services, yeah. literally said to me, you have two degrees from Cambridge. You're not an alcoholic. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so... Another binary there. That's fascinating. <laughs> exactly. And wow. I feel very grateful that I only sought their help after I already knew that I was one. Yeah. Because... Um, if, if I was still trying to figure it out, if I, I was coming up with reasons you. why I could still drink, I'd have gone with that and run. Because yeah. like this, this, this medical professional has told me this. Yeah. And so... In that situation, it was very clear that there was a direct connection between can you work? Right. If you can work, you do not mm. have this illness. Yeah, and I think sure. it's such a dangerous thing because I've met so many other alcoholics yeah. who uh, spent weeks, months, years yeah. refusing to see themselves as alcoholics yeah. and therefore get help because they were like, an alcoholic is a homeless person. Exactly. An alcoholic is like a person specific you know, image. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, who yeah. lives on a park bench, but I'm still mm. in a job. I'm still providing mm. for my family. Therefore, I am not an alcoholic. Yeah. And then they didn't get help for years. Yeah, that's interesting because that's also one that I think specifically has so many like negative connotations around like you know there's mm. almost like a, a filthiness to, to that exactly. to that word itself you know like to call someone that which is makes it wild that like if you're saying yourself that you recognize this then mm. and then from medical professionals be like no no no, no, no. <laughs> it's like, ah. and okay. it's a wild thing because nobody walks into a doctor's office and says i'm an alcoholic yeah, unless yeah. they are one really this is you what know? i'm surprised about. okay so yeah so tell but it shows more. just how deep it runs yeah 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 you know, and you can present all the other symptoms, the symptoms of like literally poisoning yourself over mm. time, decimating your mental health, decimating your relationships, being deeply unhappy. Yeah. But if you can, if as you're employable you or you're employed, yeah. then it's fine and you just have That's to keep so going. Scary. Yeah. And it is because I think if what I find so great about recovery programs concerning yeah. alcoholism is that the the root of them is self-diagnosis. Okay. You decide that you are what you are. Because mm. if I had to wait until a doctor told me I was an alcoholic mm. before I even got the idea of like hope for help, I'd have been totally broken. That's a really good point. So do you think that then actually recovery from alcoholism has been, has helped you think about the whole health thing more generally? 100%. Yeah. I think it's changed the way that I've thought about depression, about anxiety, about ADHD completely, because the thing with alcoholism is um, for various reasons uh, that I can't go into here. It's an illness, number one, and I was born with it. I can identify 
aspect of it from early okay. childhood and that means that it's going to be with me until I die right and the thing about treating alcoholism it's not it's not just about staying sober it's mm. about treating the emotional problems that lead me to want to drink and I have to do that every day That's for so as long yeah. as I live and like currently because uh, I'm still very early on that takes about two hours out of my day every day mm. um, which isn't that much when I think about what it was like when I was in active addiction oh, um, yeah, that completely revolutionized the way that I thought yeah. about health because that is definitely, maybe over time, the depressive episodes will stop. Mm. Maybe over time, um, the anxiety will go away mm. and I'm currently trying desperately to get meds for ADHD okay, and maybe that'll okay. make it very manageable. But okay. this is one illness that I'm going to have to treat yeah. every day. And if I don't treat it, then I'll relapse, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, and that's just making me think about, so this, what you're saying sounds like a much better framework for thinking about like self-care mm, because I'm, I'm just thinking about how self-care becomes this very... Um, well, firstly, very like very capitalistic thing that you just like, but you and also like you kind of wait for this, you wait for the bad thing to happen, and then you kind of mm-hmm. you don't like you don't manage it. You just sort of like buy something expensive, have a bath, like buy a bath bomb <laughs> or something, and then you'll be better for a bit, and then you'll dip again. And again, that works really well for capitalism too, because mm-hmm. you have mental health day, you do a bit of self care, and all the while it's like just keeping you just yeah. <laughs> just above surface. Um, exactly. But then th- what you're saying about, I'm just even thinking like taking two hours out, out of your day to, to kind of, um, you know, manage yourself, make sure that you're able to like look after yourself is also actually just sounds like a genuinely good idea, like for, mm. for like as Regardless, a lifestyle, you yeah. know, and just kind of being like, actually, imagine if we all had to take two hours out of our day to to look after ourselves. Mm. What would, how would that affect the ways that, as you say, that that kind of sounds like it would revolutionize the way you think about everything. I think it would. And I think that it's, again, I think that alcoholism has been such an important part of thinking about it. Because initially when my sponsor sort of told me what it would take, I was a bit like, that's a lot of time. Mm. Then I remembered that um, when I was in active addiction, I would make time to drink Mm. regardless of what was going on. And when something is important to you and when something is identified as a central part of your life, you make time for it. I know that like, I know that people have often used that in like a, a horrible or negative way. True, but fundamentally, true. if something is important for you to you, you make time mm. for it. And if our health and and self-care was if we were allowed to make it as important to us as we uh, mm. as we wanted it to be, I don't like 2 hours isn't very long at all. It yeah, really I think isn't. if you can yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if you can do it then it's yeah, then if the conditions are there for you to do then it's like do it. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I'm so conscious as well that like I can do that yeah, because I'm I a middle thinking, class yeah. student whose time is her own. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, but so what I'm just thinking now is that so the first time that I heard you talk about this was an amazing talk where the thing that really struck me was that you were talking about um, kind of like self-brutalization was mm-hmm. the term that you used. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about that um, a little bit with us now, because I found this a really I just love that you kind of showed how showed really clearly how politicized as well mm-hmm. our understandings of ourselves in this binary uh, is or are uh-huh. I don't know I feel like, I feel like a phrase that really weirdly but yeah so, so tell me more about self-brutalization please cool. <laughs> um, well I think that like the underlying thing that I have to say before I talk about it yeah. is that when I talk about alcoholism I, I mentioned that it's something that I was born with and mm. so I have to stress that I, I didn't drink because I was depressed or anxious mm-hmm. I didn't drink because of racism and sexism I, mm-hmm. I, I drank because I drank mm-hmm. um, but it became important because I've been trying to stop since I was 19 Okay. And I didn't seek help for that, even though I knew I needed it. Okay. I knew I needed it until I was 22. Okay. And within that time, I definitely was using alcohol, even though I knew it wasn't my friend, yeah. to as a as a means of self care. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I remember thinking that, um, you know. <laughs> 
the, I remember the first time that I, I thought about using it specifically, explicitly in this way, although I was using it before that, I think, um, was in the sort of Darren Wilson case um, oh. after he was acquitted of Mike Brown's death. I just thought this is extremely painful. Oh. And like I organized... Um, um, on the day of it, I co-organized like a solidarity campaign yeah. with it, with like um, a leader of the BME campaign yeah, at the time. And that was really good. That, that helped me turn that pain into something right. good. Right. But then once that was all done, that pain was still there. Mm. And I knew that like, I, I know that organizing a, a campaign works, but I could, I could also just drink mm. and then mm. that pain goes. And that felt like self-care yeah, at the time, even sense. though I knew at the back of my head, yeah this is not a good thing for you to be doing. Yeah. Um, I didn't care. And I felt like it was a radical act because I was just like, okay, I can like, I can sit in this law dinner yeah. and have somebody tell me that he thinks that women are inherently less intelligent. Oh and then I can drink and not care about mm. it. And it's gone. And it mm. felt radical, mm. but so it wasn't because yeah. fundamentally what it was, was a, it was a form of self-brutalization. And I think it wasn't just that because I was an alcoholic, but it definitely was because of that. But I think it, t it took away from the fact that self-care is supposed to be an act of political warfare it is a response it is a radical response to racism and and sexism and the whole point of those structures of oppression is to break us down mm. it's to make us too tired um to fight it and it's to, to demolish us once we are too tired oh, or regardless and so with the whole drinking thing what i was effectively doing was like brutalizing myself demolishing mm. myself in response to racism and sexism which is exactly what those structures desire mm. um and so, yeah, this is why I've become quite militant about the idea of self-care as an act of political warfare. Um, I don't think that being militant about self-care takes the joy out of it. I think the opposite, because since then I've really sat down and thought about what makes me happy. Hmm. You know, what makes me feel like spiritually good and upbeat? What makes me want to get up in the morning? Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful thing to like sit down that and devote time to thinking about, you know? I feel quite excited to do that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like I 100% would recommend because okay. the joy that I felt when I sat down and wrote down the first thing, what always makes me happy? Okay. Watching Bob's Burgers. Ah. <laughs> and like putting that on a spectrum from stuff that requires no spoons to like take on the sort of the language um, of like radical dis uh, disabledist politics. Um, like stuff that doesn't really require me to get out of bed if that's not what I can do mm. to stuff like cooking and swimming that I also know makes me happy regardless of what's going on okay. stuff that I know like releases endorphins or just yeah. makes me feel good about myself yeah. like creating that spectrum yeah. of things that bring me joy um is both joyful in and of itself and radical. Mm. Um, and I know that if I had to write that list age 19, yeah. if I tried to do that, drinking wouldn't be on the list. Okay, okay, it wouldn't be, okay. even though it was easy. And so I think That's that we do have point. a responsibility to be militant about what self-care is for mm. us. Not to like fear monger. I'm not saying that anybody who doesn't do that develops a kind of illness or disorder that... Um, is self-brutalizing but for me that's a lesson that I've taken from mm. it that I think that anybody can learn from yeah and I think also the way that you're talking about it is good because it's not saying like it's not self-fixing right mm. it's not like <laughs> there's not this idea of like because I think what happens is that a lot of times then um a lot of this language just become like reproduces ableism and reproduces like the stigma attached to chronic illnesses and, exactly. and those kinds of things because it's like well if you just self-cared enough then you would uh, you know you'd be quote-unquote fixed you know um so i i'm i feel quite yeah i feel quite intrigued by this this way of thinking about like i guess because you're also just kind of saying like it's like an everyday almost mundane praxis right yeah. that you're just like just thinking about ourselves in a, in a wholly different way yeah Okay, so 
on this same kind of healthy sick um, binary, I mean, with all the, the binaries that we've explored so far, um, and with this one, uh, we've already done it, I guess, that there's always a function or there seems to be actually a political purpose mm-hmm. that the binary works to kind of obscure or deliberately misunderstand, I would say. So, you know, we've looked at um, how kind of border violence gets obscured or like um, the, the violence of prisons and, and institutional racism. Um, but with this one, I think um, it also... It's interesting because I think it does, not in a conspiratorial way, but I think it has worked previously to have very um, political purposes. And so the, the yeah. thing that came to mind for me initially when I was having this line of thought was, um, you know, the pathologization. So the kind of saying that it is inherent to um, certain people that they're a certain way of like craziness and hysteria mm-hmm. into women. Um, and I wondered about like how how you think that has changed if you think that has changed or if you think that you still see or like what you think about that in general like this doesn't have to be a specific in- interview question <laughs> interrogation but just yeah I mean what do you what do you because I yeah. think you still I think that's still so much of a weaponized thing like women's emotions 100%. and all of that yeah and I think it's fundamentally taking um mental illness from the public sphere into the private one mm, of course you yeah. know yeah. which is one of the easiest ways that um people can relinquish responsibility yeah. um, or people can a separate responsibility uh, for one illness, but also just well, yeah. To go into it more, like it firstly becomes a way of policing behavior, yes, particularly exactly. in terms of women. Like um, if you react to something in any way that isn't the way that other people want you to react to something, yeah. you're ill. Yeah, yeah you yeah, become yeah, crazy, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that is an institutionalized thing. Mm. It's not the case that anybody who reacts differently in any way mm. is automatically deemed crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, although that does happen mm. um, as concerns members of marginalized groups. It is if this woman uh, does not react well to, uh, I don't know, just the trappings of womanhood, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then she is crazy. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And even though like maybe, uh, and again, I'm not an expert, my general understanding is that we've maybe moved from pathologizing that craziness to just putting it down to hormones. You know, Mm, people try and still pathologize it in a way that they still pathologize it, but not in a way that leads to people becoming institutionalized. But it does become, oh, she's PMSing. Oh, women are just more emotional because of all these hormones. Yeah, because the other, because as you say, it does police behavior, but it also to an extent like ignores the seriousness of situations exactly. because yeah. I'm thinking as well of like when you know women in abusive relationships who would respond in a very reasonable way yeah. would be seen as oh my god crazy ex-girlfriend <laughs> you know like what's she doing when it's like exactly. actually that's uh, in a context of violence what's a very like reasonable response to be having a lot of times that's precisely it um, and so even if it does lead to illness those people don't count as Ill in, in the way that like, in a way that uh, demands empathy or not even empathy, just understanding or treatment. It's just, uh, you know, you reacted in a way that we don't like. Yeah. So you are stigmatized. Yeah. You're stigmatized, but that's as far as it goes in terms yeah. of this label of, of illness. Um, but I, I also think that, yeah, exact like um, perfectly reasonable reactions to things just become cold. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I guess that also just thinking about like um, angry black women trope, mm-hmm. like how that is also a very specific realization yeah. of that where you just be completely dismissed as soon as you appear to be remotely upset about something. Yeah. Um, and I mean, one of the most important things that I realized was that all it takes is saying something that people disagree with to be called angry or aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> and once I realized that, cause I definitely did try to taper my anger yeah. in the past. Like as a kid, I'd be like, have you considered um, that blackface is maybe racist a little? <laughs> um, <laughs> and even in like, and I'm so conscious of the class aspects of this as well. Like I really noticed 
least um, while I was at Cambridge that I would say things and people would be like, oh, thank you, really changed my point of view. Mm. Um, but then mm. somebody without my accent would say the same thing and they'd be like, oh, bit aggressive. Yeah, um, yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, I, I was so conscious that that factors into so much of like um, whether what I say will be like just reduced to being an angry black woman. Yeah. Um, but even beyond that, like... Um, once I realized that it doesn't matter what I say, yeah. um, people are still going to fight. Like the right pe- people yeah. want to dismiss me. They'll yeah. call me angry. I was just like, well, I'll be angry mm. then. I don't have to suppress the human part of me that's yeah. responding yeah. to this thing yeah, with yeah. anger, which is the normal response. Yeah. You know? yeah. This just made me think as well about like, um, I suppose age and class and all these different intersections and just thinking about my grandma um, and how um, I think like there's this, there's this trope of like, older you know immigrant women that, that, that like they kind of just have sadness inherent in them and that they mm-hmm. all just should ju- and they should in a way you know like they yeah. should just be sad um and like that they're kind of narrated as tragedy and they kind of yeah. in fact that this trope of tragedy i would say um and there's something almost like romantic about that but then i, I recently what we we realized over the summer or what I, I realized because of just kind of having been exposed to kind of understandings about mental health and stuff was that um my grandma wasn't just sort of like you know, everyone was like, oh, she's just acting really weird at the moment. She's like, really, you know, she's aging really quickly, all of this. And I was like, I think she's having panic attacks. Mm-hmm. I think she, and she, and she was, turns out. But it took yeah. like, I was just thinking that no one would ever have come mm-hmm. to that conclusion, you know, because instead it was just like, oh, her blood pressure keeps going really high. Well, you know, she's old yeah. and she shouldn't be traveling. She shouldn't be doing all these things. But actually it's that she has like an anxiety disorder and probably has for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but what was also really exciting was kind of thinking about um as you say this management thing and finding like a different way I was just thinking about how exciting it is to find like a different language to to say that someone both like actually a different language but also like you know explaining that I was just thinking how liberating it was in a sense for her to be able to go because I remember that she said um there was this idea that it's something that she didn't have to get rid of but that yeah. she just lived with and I think that was the most powerful thing that was said to her um because my mom went with her to like this um therapy guy and it was it sounds hilarious by the way because like he's like this old white English guy and mm. then my grandma just was like I can kind of understand you but kind of not my mom was there and he was like I don't think this is okay for confidentiality and she was like no I, she won't understand and this is this whole wild thing but yeah. shout out to the NHS anyway um, but yeah so he and I think so at one point he was just like she was like you know but how do I get rid of it mm. and, she, and he was like no that's not the point like it's that you live with it and so since then she's just it's just really funny because she'll just be like oh it's just my anxiety and just like I, I kind of I love this that this has changed your whole like understand and she's like 82 and yeah. and like that can that idea of managing can still be so liberating at that age exactly um but yeah that, that just wouldn't have been a thing if we'd just accepted that yeah she is just she should just be sad and she should just be stressed yeah. and that's just the way you know um yeah okay cool and I was yeah I was just thinking as well on the, on the note of like institutionalization and how that does have super racialized dynamics to it and has mm-hmm. historically um in terms of just another way of kind of <laughs> I can only make the hand motion but not think of the word <laughs> like get rid of yeah um get rid of that well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like wiping my hands across the desk um yeah to get rid of um of people that that mm-hmm. are problem problematic or exposing problematic elements of your society yeah um and I think that's always been a very like devastating thing but then you also have that crossover as well I'm just thinking at the moment with like um where you have um people with either like um kind of autism and Asperger's and stuff in the U.S. black people who Mm. are then killed by the police for that then being read as like a I don't know an exhibition of like danger essentially no exactly and and you can 
it's interesting because I remember doing um, my criminology module in the second year mm. <laughs> um, and it just kind of been accepted as a fact that where welfare states are shrunk the criminal justice system um, expands itself to pick up the slack mm, that's really scary you wow. know and that is exactly what happens like wow. people with mental illnesses um, if that can be interpreted like if those illnesses then exhibit themselves in any way that could be deemed criminal yeah imprisoned yeah, yeah. um or in in situations like the states or even here tbh just killed by the police just yeah, got unrid yeah. of just hidden away yeah um yeah and i think that 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 is a really it also go, then goes back to austerity like if we decide that um the welfare mm. state is the first thing to go if yeah. we've got to save money yeah um yeah. then that is inevitably the response mm. that vulnerable people who need help yeah. uh, will be picked up by the criminal justice system instead yeah. and then that obviously exacerbates um, yeah. the issue of being ill in the first yeah. place yeah. You know? actually and it's just making me think as well I, I remember reading a um, report about kind of um, and this was to do with prevent statistics and re- referrals to prevent and it, I think it was this was this was specifically amongst under 15 year olds mm-hmm. who were reported to prevent which by the way counts as like a big majority of prevent referrals um, but that of those, um, I think it's like a huge percentage, and it's annoying that I can't remember the statistics, but get referred on to mental health services. So you're that's like, wow, that's fascinating that what was first reported as a sign of radicalization, quote unquote, mm. very problematic kind of, we have deemed you suspicious because of your identity, then gets turned into, oh no, you just, um, I don't know, like I'm really intrigued to know whether they, this actually is like a mental health yeah. thing or whether it's just that now you're being essentialized in a different way and it's being said, well, you're not, um, you're not suspicious, but you are still something something yeah something other something different something that needs rectifying something that needs rectifying exactly like you are not presenting as if you want to be one of us right given that we're never going to accept you as one of us you're not presenting as if you want to be one of us so there has to be something that we can put you through to make you right you know yeah yeah that's a really good point yeah and i think that again like then that kind of goes into how how often dissent and protest have often been also Mm. seen as like you know veering into that line of like you know, kooky, crazy, extravagant, exactly. you know, and hmm, that's really interesting. It's such a natural response, but only if you've divested from all of the norms that you're fighting against. <laughs> if you're very much in it, then it is crazy. You know, yeah. these things become ontological truths that people genuinely can't like think their ways out of um, yeah. in order to humanize you or to try and meet you yeah. on, on, on your level. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so then just becomes, it's, it's almost like in many ways, mental illness just becomes the kind of bin that you just shove people into if you yeah. don't quite understand them, which isn't to say that it's not a useful category because no. people are just ill. Um, but it picks up a whole load of other people mm. as well. But that's the thing. I think there has there is nuance to this whole conversation, which is that like health matters, mm. but also like the obsession with health looking a certain way and that always being inherently a good becomes really problematic. Yeah. So I guess usually to wrap up, we just kind of, uh, I would ask you like what you think is a better way to think about um, this, this concept, I guess, that we're talking about rather than healthy and sick. Yeah. And so in the case of, um, you know, like thinking about innocence and guilt in one of our episodes, we, we kind of left with thinking about maybe we should talk about harm more and maybe we need to centre mm-hmm. actually harm in this. So what do you think is the way that we should go forward thinking about um, ourselves, but also others rather than thinking in this binary of healthy and sick? Yeah, I think it would go back to this idea of access to care, um, of this idea that we're all capable of becoming sick. Um and that we are all by virtue of our humanity deserving of the correct level of care uh, to deal with that sickness. Um, But also 
once you kind of almost externalize it to like an access to care, um, I think you can stop building personal judgments about yourself based mm. um, on how you're navigating your illness mm. um, compared to this narrative of how you should be navigating your, your, your illness. You know, like um, there are times when I've um, like had dips in my mood um, and I've just assumed that I'm not doing this right and yeah. there's something wrong with me. And then that also becomes another way to sort of self-brutalize where I'm just like... Um, well, I've messed this up completely. Mm. I'm in a really bad place because I'm not in the place that I'm supposed to be. Mm. It becomes a total binary of like, either I'm on the right trajectory or yeah. I'm well. And if I dip even slightly, then I'm right back to where I started. Yeah. But that's not true. And then you have to like punish yourself further for it as well. Exactly. But it's like, these dips are yeah. exactly part of it. Yeah, that's true. Because I think there's that whole idea of even just saying like, oh yeah, I'm doing better. I'm doing better. It's like, mm. that's... That we know what that looks like. And it would, you can't actually, it would be really bad to say, or you would feel wrong to say, I'm doing worse. Like, mm. that would be like, oh, you're not, you're clearly doing something wrong then. Like, and what just, are you sometimes doing? Sometimes you are. Yeah. You know? And it's not like the onus isn't necessarily on you to, <laughs> to, to rectify that. That's not like you, oh, well, it's your fault. Exactly. And I think it makes it easier to then recognize, to, to be more willing. At least I found for me, it's made me more willing to, um, access the help that I need or to access all the, the stuff that I've learned in the past to, to get better. And even like recently, so, um, I relapsed last week, um, right before the Edinburgh thing, which is why I was in a terrible mood. Mm. <laughs> um, <when we> <laughs> <Personal> cross. Point. <laughs> no, yeah, relatable content. <laughs> well, I perked up though. We saw the sea. It was Did, fine. You perked up pretty fast. Yeah. Um, but, but like for me, I had to, uh, particularly because like I'd almost I, I'd like hit three months and I was just like I thought I'm doing well and like I'm so used to only ever relapsing when I feel depressed mm. or sad or lonely or scared or whatever that I just I couldn't comprehend why when I felt you know pretty content like ill still but content I was like I don't get why this mm. has happened and that could have been like um a reason to go on some kind of bender and be like yeah. well you know I guess I'm screwed yeah um but luckily like I was able to meet with my sponsor and we talked about it and I figured out what it was Good. and it only lasted a night but I think it only lasted a night because I was just like Relapse is kind of part of this. That's really good. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I knew that even though I felt down and scared because I didn't know what it was that yeah. caused it, I was just like, I haven't gone back to square one. Yeah. No. Because where I was this time last year with this problem yeah. is nothing compared to where I am now. Yeah. yeah. And so I can just like take this L. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, go and see my sponsor, which I know is the right thing to do. Yeah. Go and talk to other people who've relapsed recently. Yeah. Um, and then learn from that. Yeah. And so it hasn't been like a happy or great experience, but I feel like it has been a healthy response to yeah. it. Yeah. And then, so it's not just like managing your health, but also managing your expectations. Exactly. It sounds like of what of what to expect for yourself and from yourself. This is the thing. And I think it's if, but for this viewpoint, I, you know, I'd be screwed. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> no, that's really good to hear. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking Binaries. I hope you, like me, can take something from my guest this week. Look out for episodes fortnightly and if you enjoyed, please share with a friend or loved ones or even a nemesis. I want to thank Hussain Kasvani for making this possible and reaching out to me in the first place, as well as the whole gang of producers, Milo and Nate. The music you've been hearing was made by an old high school connection that came through, so shout out to Violence Jack and give him a follow at, at getviolencejack online. Thanks to all my guests for chatting with me every week and helping us think a little more critically and I hope humbly about our world. I do believe that the way we transform the world is transforming the way people think about it. So thank you for listening. I've been your host, Sahima Manzokan. Bye.